One of our uh, kind of catchphrases here as a church is that we want to be a place where you can belong, feel welcome, feel invited before you're asked to believe or behave. And what kind of that means functionally is that like, we're not trying to judge you, we're not trying to get any gotcha moments, but, it, but I think there's something that we all need to come clean about this morning. How many of you that when your phone gives you that notification that it's time to update and it says, please read the terms and conditions, actually read the terms and conditions before you click OK? Anyone? Yeah. Okay. So if we all, we're just going to spend a moment in repentance this morning, uh, bowing before God. And so uh, I think it's just funny. There's this, this understanding that we get these rules, this fine print that comes across in life. And it's funny because they're probably there for our protection, but who actually spends the time to read and understand those? You see, my life hack around it is to get a phone that's actually so old that when I actually click okay, it says this device actually does not support this upgrade. So I don't got to worry about it. I get off scot-free. Um, but there's companies that have kind of become aware of this dynamic that nobody probably actually reads the terms and conditions that they've written in some funny things into their literature. Let me give you a few examples. Amazon, you guys know Amazon, the company that like basically rules the world now, okay? Yeah, um, and so buried in section 57-10 of their terms and services, it talks about the proper use of their lumber yard materials. Here's a secret. I didn't even know they had lumber yards, but it makes sense. But it says this about what you can and can't do with them. It says, however, these restrictions will not apply in the event of the occurrence certified by the United States Center for Disease Control or successor body of a widespread infection transmitted via bites or contact with bodily fluids that causes human corpses to reanimate and sink to uh, consume living flesh, blood, brain, or nerve tissue and is likely the result of the fall of organized organized civilization. Case in point, if there's a zombie apocalypse, you can go raid Amazon's lumber yard. And with lumber prices right now, that actually sounds kind of nice. Here's another one. There's a website called Tumblr. It's kind of this collection of blogs where you can pick a URL, you kind of have your own blog and talk about it. Under the terms and conditions, when talking about confusion or interpretation or impersonation, it says this. It just says, don't do things that would cause confusion between you or your blog and a person or company, like registering a deliberately confusing URL. Don't impersonate anyone. While you're free to ridicule, parody, or marvel at the alien beauty of Benedict Cumberbatch, you can't actually pretend to be Benedict Cumberbatch. And then it has this line that says, so please report any confusion or impersonation. Here's the last one. Uh, this is from iTunes and Apple. Now, I remember first getting my first iPod and just being like, oh my goodness, what is this thing from the future? This holds what, 10 songs? No, 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 10,000 songs in the palm of your hands? What is this power that we have? In their user agreement, it talks about this, of how you can properly use this technology. It says, by, by putting this into use, you also agree that you will not use these products for any purposes prohibited by the United States law, including, without limitation, the development, design, manufacture, or production of nuclear missiles or chemical or biological weapons. Translation, you can play on repeat U2's How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb all you want, you just can't actually set one off with your iPod if you're smart enough to figure that out. Fine print is everywhere in our life, isn't it? 
And I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little nervous, like when I kind of just like scroll through, just get me to the bottom and click okay. Whether I'm like staying at an Airbnb, renting a car, downloading software, whatever it is, doesn't it sometimes just feel like the fine print is out to get you a little bit? Now, in Scripture, there's this huge portion that sometimes I think we think of it as the fine print of the Bible. That's the law, the, the old stuff, the stuff that was, well, that was for them back then, but what about us now? And I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments, the biggies that we all probably at some form or fashion have heard of. You know, be smart not to kill someone, don't sleep with another person's spouse, don't take anyone's stuff, don't have any other idols before God. But there's actually 613 other rules and regulations written into the life of someone during the Old Testament period. This was found in the book of Leviticus, other parts of the Old Testament, as well as what is called the Midrash, is how they put things together. And this ranges from, hey, it'd be smart not to take anyone's life, all the way down to how many steps you could take on your Sabbath, your day of rest. And in some ways, it kind of puts us in this awkward spot. Well, well what do we do with all these rules? What do we do with these laws? Do we, do we seek to uphold them all? Do, do we just get rid of them and pretend like they don't exist? Do we go cry in the corner because we're oh, not really sure what to do with these? And as we study in our, continue in our study of Hebrews this morning, that's kind of what they're trying to help us understand, is what do we do with the law? What do we do with all of the rules, the regulations, the terms of service, so to speak, in following after God? So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. You can pull out the app if you haven't done so. You can follow along with us there and take notes. We are uh, a couple weeks out from ending our study in the book of Hebrews. It's been a great series, a great study. And uh, it's kind of been this idea of encouraging us all to look at our faith and how we're walking with Jesus. Are we on the right path? Are we listening to those rumble strips? Are we staying away from the guardrails? And, and how do we continue to do this? And so today, we're going to look at chapter 10, and it talks a lot about the law. Now, the law is littered throughout the book of Hebrews, but we're going to seek to answer three questions this morning. What was the point of the law? What is the point of the law? And what do we do with the law here and now? So starting in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, this is where we dive in this morning. It says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all, and there would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. We talked a lot about that last week. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, there's this misnomer, isn't there, that when it comes to being a follower of God or being a Christian, that sometimes when we hear this rules, these rules, this law, is that, well, I think God's goal is to make me into a good person. Perhaps you've been there before. Like if you were to sit down and say, well, what is the point of being a Christian, being a disciple? I think sometimes we, we just jump to morality. That, that Jesus just wants me to, to make me a better, more well-adjusted person of society. That, that God's goal is just to make me a good -er person. And, and I think in some ways that, that that's like our natural human instinct. Because if you were to go up to people on the street and say, hey, when you die, are you going to go to heaven? And if they say yes, and you ask, okay, well, why? Why do you think this? Why do you believe this? Well, they could say something to the extent of, well, 
because I'm a good person. Now, it's interesting, though, because in that moment, this idea of being a a good person becomes all too subjective, doesn't it? Because you might view yourself as a good person, and there might be people in your life who say, yeah, that's absolutely, you're not just a good person, you're a great person. If people really knew who you were, man, that's incredible. And at the same time, too, there might be people in your life who say, yeah, it's kind of hard for us to judge ourselves sometimes. (laughs) You think of yourself as a good person, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, you really got some work to do. And so then we, we might live in this, in this period in which we are, have this, this way of, well, how do I know if I'm in or out? If the goal is to be a good person, how do I know if I'm actually being a good person or not? And so this is where Hebrews jumps in. It says the point of the law wasn't to show you how to be a good person. The point of the law was not to show you how to earn your way into heaven. The point of the law was the reminder of sin. And put it this way, that the point of the law wasn't to show you how to live a sinless life, rather it was to show you and I alike that we couldn't. It changes it, doesn't it? This list of rules, these regulations, the law, the terms and conditions, isn't to say, well, if you try really, really, really hard, if you spend a lot of years, decades even, you can maybe outweigh your good with your bad. And it said, no, 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 it's just say, here is God's heart. Here is God's character. Here is what God wants from us. You're not doing so well, right? Think about it. Think about how in school we have rules for what? Basically everything. Stay in line, don't talk out loud, don't cut other people off. We have rules for like what? Sharing. Is it because we need to know deep down that sharing is a good thing? No, no, no. We have rules for sharing because we naturally don't want to share, right? The one word you don't have to teach your kid is mine, my toy, my Legos, my things, And so we have to come in and tell them, hey, sharing is caring. It's a good thing. You actually should be sharing with your friends. That's something we all need to be doing. Why? Because we naturally don't want to do sometimes that which is good. You don't have to teach people how to be selfish. You don't have to teach people how to be full of pride. You don't have to teach people to be arrogant. And you don't have to teach people some issues of sin or brokenness. What we do need the reminder of, though, is actually what is good, what is the way that we ought to live. And so the law is given to us not a way to earn or to appease God or to somehow put yourself on the right side of the scale so that he is obligated to love you. Rather, the law has been given to each and every one of us to be reminded that we need help, that we need to be saved, that we need to be rescued, we need to be restored. And this idea of the law goes hand in hand with that Old Testament sacrificial system. Here's the rules, here's the regulations, and when you fall short, what? There's a debt that needs to be paid. When you speed and you get a ticket, you need to pay the debt. And on and on down the line. The point of the law and the sacrificial system wasn't to show you how you might be able to do it on your own strength. Rather, it was to reveal that you and I alike we could not. And the interesting thing is the law is not God's way of keeping his thumb down upon you. It's not God's way of kind of just kind of getting you under oppression. Rather, the point of God's law is to show you, ought you not have faith in something better? Ought you not have faith in something greater? Ought you not have faith in something that will pay your debt before me? 
And so it gets me to ask the question, though. So, so why were these Hebrew Christians facing the temptation to drift back into doing things with the law? Was it because it was easy? Was it because it was comfortable? Was it because they felt like a sense of pride that they have earned something? One scholar put it this way. He said that returning to the law is not making a slight shift trying to get out of a tricky situation. Instead, it's like returning to a house that is about to collapse. What the author of Hebrews is trying to get at, he's saying, hey, you're returning to that which was temporary when Jesus has brought forth that which is eternal. So my question for all of us all at this point is what do, we, what do you find yourself returning to in life and in faith? Is there anything that you run to, that you hold dear to, hoping that it gives you a little bit more comfort, a little bit more peace, perhaps security, or even in your pursuit of faith other than Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans in chapter 7, he puts it this way, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have never known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring me life actually brought me death. What he's talking about, the law does not make you alive. It reveals that you are dead. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. Verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. What the Apostle Paul is getting at here, what he is saying, is that the law defines sin for you and I. And that means if there is a moral law, if there is a law, there must also be a good, moral, holy, righteous law giver. The law reveals what is on God's heart, his design, his character, that shalom that he created you and I in the beginning to live with him. And because God is holy, God must also then say, that anything that breaks my law, anything that breaks my code, any of that sin, it must be dealt with. Because think of it this way, is that if we had a God who claimed to be good and just and righteous, and he just overlooked sin, just pretended like it didn't exist, he's not good, rather he's just purely apathetic. The God who, who does not punish wrongdoing can't actually be labeled as loving, rather just simply unjust. And so the law makes it clear that God takes sin seriously. But in the moments in which he takes our sin seriously, he takes his love for us all the more seriously. Because when we become aware of how we fall short, he has always provided a way in his love and his mercy to redeem you and I. I love what the Apostle Paul says, well, kind of without the law, I wouldn't necessarily have known that I was in the wrong. Because don't we do some of those similar things? Don't we try to look at our past or our mistakes and we try to put them in like cute clothing? We just give them different terms to make it feel less heavy. 
say things like, well, well I didn't really lie. I just kind of told the half-truth. Well, I wasn't really gossiping. I was just sharing information. I wasn't angry. I was just passionate. I'm not a covetous person. I'm just driven. That wasn't actually premarital sex. We were just kind of, you know, hooking up. I'm not selfish. I'm just an ambitious person. And the irony of when we find ourselves doing that is Jesus kind of did the exact opposite. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and the people in the gospel saying, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with their brother or sister has already committed murder in their heart. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, he who has lusted after another has already committed adultery in their own life. You see, the law does something specific. It calls sin for what it is. And it shows us that every sin, every act of disobedience, every wrongdoing results in something that needs to be made right. And that's where verses 3 and 4 become so powerful in Hebrews chapter 10 when it says that the law's point is to remind you and I of our sin. But here's what I need you to know. Lean in and hear this. Is the point of the law isn't to make you feel bad about yourself. The point of the law isn't to show, man, you just really can't get your life together. The point of the law is to say, that's why we need faith. That's why we need something greater, something more powerful, something more substantial in our walk with God. It's a reminder not to trap us or to feel like we can't get away from it or to feel down about yourself. Rather, it's that promise of victory. Because for every single time, there's a nuance of the law. Every single time we see that here's this brokenness that needs to be dealt with right on its heels is God saying, but I am going to show up. I am going to faithfully provide. I am going to let you put your faith in something above yourself so that I can deal with that debt on your behalf so that you and I can be made right. That the law should not just remind us of our sin, it should also remind us that we have been given a victory over the pain and brokenness in this life and in the life to come. See, if the point of the law was never to say, here's how you can save yourself, then something else needed to appease it. And turning back to Hebrews uh, chapter 10, we're going to pick up in verse 11. It says this, it says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What Hebrews is saying, the old priest versus Jesus, the great high priest. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I think sometimes, especially if we've been a Christian for, for a little bit, we get into this mindset, well, the Old Testament is then, we're New Testament people. The Old Testament, the law, that's kind of bad. We don't live that way. Let's not believe it, look to it. But we're New Testament people. We like Jesus. We like grace. Let's not really figure out and kind of deal with those rules. We, we are grace-filled people. And what Hebrews is reminding us is that one of them was a shadow to set up the one that is to come. Let me give you an illustration. Um, I have done six weddings in, this, in the past, I think, six months. In all six of them, 
met online and started dating online. But here's the thing. Not all six of them, or none of the six of them, just decided to keep their relationship purely online for all of eternity. Like, I have yet to perform a Zoom wedding in which the people have said, hey, we're just going to continue just to, to be married to each other from states apart because, you know, online is cool like that. Now, that's not to say that, that meeting people online or starting a relationship online is something that is bad or wrong. It's that one is good, but another is best. That the point of the online dating, the eHarmonies, the Christian Mingles, the FarmerOnlys.com, whatever it is that you're meeting people, is you meet someone online to then set you up for what is it better. The good thing leads to that which is better. And it's the same with the Old Testament. The Old Testament paints to this goodness of God. It paints the idea that we need to be saved, we need to be rescued, we need to be restored, we need to have faith in a sacrifice. But the better sacrifice is not the reoccurring one that the old priest had to do. It's the once and for all declarative, permanent sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why go to which is good when you have been handed which is better? What Hebrews is saying is that the point of the law is now to point us to Jesus. That the point of the law is to point us to Jesus. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 puts it this way. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Ironically, in, in, in one of the prophets Hosea chapter 6, it says, do, I do not require sacrifice, rather steadfast love. On our own strength, living in the law over and over and over, it would never cease. You see, there's this intentional terminology used in this portion of Hebrews chapter 10 where it says the old priests, they would constantly stand and they would always be doing their duties. They would never rest. But now the great high priest, Jesus, he gave himself, he gave that sacrifice and it said what? He now sits. Living a life trying to fulfill the law, living a life trying to please God with your actions, Living the life thinking you need to earn your way to heaven. Not only will it not work, but that work will be completely tireless at the same time. Whereas Jesus comes in, the all-sufficient sacrifice says, I have done the work. I have sat at right hand of God, and I invite you to sit along with me. You see, being in Jesus means God does not look at the list of good works that you and I have or haven't done. Rather, he looks at Jesus and Jesus alone. My son uh, turns five tomorrow. We're having a massive Lego party blowout. It's going to be awesome. We'll probably just play Everything is Awesome on repeat for like three hours. It's going to be great. Sugar, Legos, what could go wrong? No big deal. And uh, he started playing t-ball uh, this year for the first time. You know, it's his first time, most of the kids, maybe they had played bitty ball or whatever it is, but he's playing t-ball for the first time. And what they're trying to do is twofold, is they're trying to teach the basic rules of the game while also hoping that everyone has fun. 
And so they kind of teach them how to run the bases and they teach them how to play catch and no one actually knows how to play catch. They just throw it straight into the ground or they turn around and throw it the other way because that's what little kids do, whatever it is. And, and then when the games come along, they, they do this thing where the coach will sit uh, and, and pitch them balls and, and without fail, almost every single kid will get into the batter's box. They can barely hold up the bat and then the pitch will come, it'll go by and then they'll swing. And they'll do this like four or five times. And then if the kid doesn't hit the ball, they'll bring out a tee, put it on the tee, and then the kid gets to take as many swings as he wants until he hits the ball into play. Now, they're trying to teach them the rules, while at the same time helping them have grace and freedom and enjoying the game. You see, the one thing we don't hear is, is the parents yelling at the four- and five-year-olds, that's three strikes, send him to the bench, he's out of there. We don't keep score, because everyone gets to touch and go around the bases and touch home plate. But then I go like, well, we have ten players, they have nine, so actually we won. So, but no, like, we, you know, we're not supposed to do that. We teach them the rules. Here's how you play the game. Here's the way it's intended to be, to, for baseball to be played. However, you get as many swings as you want. You get to have fun. We're going to overlook your shortcomings, your pitfalls. We're going to overlook the fact that the helmet is three sizes too big. We're going to overlook the fact that you can't really hold that bat. Why? Because we want you to enjoy it. In a similar way, God gives us the rules. He gives us the regulations. He gives us the sense of this is how life ought to be lived. But at the same time, too, he's standing behind us saying, but don't worry. Keep swinging. Get another hack in there. I'm not calling you out. Don't listen to what they say. Don't listen to what the rules are trying to get you to believe about yourself. You're a winner. You get to be on base. You get to score because I am with you. See, what the law then becomes, it's a how to live. The law becomes how to know God. And it also becomes a know-how of living with God. Continue on in Hebrews, picking up in verse 22, kind of, so what does this look like for us? who we have the law, but we're not necessarily held to upholding it to the strict standard. It says this, it says, So let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having put our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more you see the day approaching. The book of Hebrews speaks a lot about drawing near to God. Sometimes it uses this word sanctification. That means our process of growing into who Jesus has made us to be. You notice what was lacking in this passage here? You notice what the author of Hebrews left out? Was that whole idea of being a good person. The author of Hebrews said, so, so remember, Jesus has made you right. He's given you the law. Now go be a good person. He, he didn't say, okay, so you know the rules. You know what, okay, we've gotten you into the game, but don't strike out. So no, let us hold faithfully 
to that promise that we are restored in grace and grace alone. Let us encourage one another. Let us point one another to Jesus. Let us not put each other down. Let us hold unswervingly to that hope that we profess. And that hope that we profess is not look at how good I am. The hope that you and I profess as Christians is not look at what I have achieved. The hope that you and I profess is look at what Jesus has done. Look at how he's died for us. Look at how he has restored us. Look at how he has given us new life. That is our call for one another as disciples, as husbands, as fathers, as parents, but certainly as Christians. We point each other to Jesus, not our sin. Our role as Christians, our role as disciples, is not to point out the sin in one another. That's God's job. He will convict. He will be just. Our job is not to go up to that brother and sister in Christ and say, you done messed up again. Our job is to remind each other of that love and that faith and that hope, that restoration. Sure, there's accountability and sure, there is shrewdness. But to remind one another of the hope that we profess together. Let's imagine you had three people in your life. You had one person who all they did was point out your flaws. You're like, I got one of those. It's called a mom. Okay, whatever, right? You have someone who, who that's all they did is they just pointed out every single thing that you did wrong. Let's say there's a second person who never pointed out anything you did wrong so much so that they saw you stepping into pain, into brokenness, and they just said, it's not my job. Not my prop. It's on you. And let's say you have a third person whose job was to be committed to walk along with you through life. The hardest times, the struggles, that when you messed up, they're not there to demean you, rather to point you to a greater source of hope and of faith. That when you are winning and when you are moving forward and when you are being obedient, they're right there with you, cheering you on, encouraging you. Which of those three people would you want to spend your time with? Which of those three people would you want to say, that's who I want to surround my life with? My guess, it's that third person. My guess, it's that person who is with us saying, remember that hope, remember that faith, remember that we are together in this, in the family of God. That's why Hebrews chapter 10 closes out this way, picking up in verse 36. It says, so you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. And by my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Hebrews, in sum, is saying, faith in animals and their blood can't save you. Faith in your good works cannot save you. Only faith in the merciful God to make a way is what redeems you and I. Put it this way, as we get ready to close out our sermon this morning, it says, we put our faith in the works of Jesus not our own. We put our faith in the work of Jesus, not our own. 
This is kind of how, though, this text has impacted me, is because I am someone who, I like to kind of create a list. I don't know if you're a type A person, a list maker, and you like to check things out, but there are definitely seasons in my life in which I have felt like it was up to me. That my ability to be perhaps loved by God, my ability perhaps to be redeemed by God, perhaps my ability to be blessed by God was up to me. That as long as I fulfilled that Christian duty list, as long as I did all of those things, this list of rules, and if I check them all off and I get to go to the fridge and put the gold stars, then Jesus loves me and I get to pat myself on the back and say, oh, phew, okay, I've did it. But then retroactively, then when those things don't happen, then I start to freak out. Like, oh my goodness, perhaps God doesn't love me anymore. I've kind of made a mess of it. I said I'm a Christian, but I haven't been to church in forever. I said I'm a Christian, but I don't remember the last time I opened my Bible. I said I'm a Christian, but I don't remember the time I actually bowed to him in prayer. I said I'm a Christian, but, but you know, I've, I've never gave any money to the church. I said I'm a Christian, but I've never served. And we begin to freak out. We, I don't know, like I've done this before. I know I'm kind of getting spastic right now, but I've been there. In which I have felt like faith is up to me. And I look at the rules and say, if I don't match up, then I'm just going to purely fall short. And I have to remind myself that on a regular basis, the point of the rules, the point of the law is not to say, come on, buddy. Get those bootstraps just a little bit higher. It's to say, this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus lived a perfect life. And more importantly, this is why Jesus died on your behalf. I'm not suggesting that we care less about holiness. What I am suggesting is that we care more about Jesus. I'm not saying we care less about obedience. I'm not saying we care less about trying to uphold all of those rules and the Ten Commandments. What I am saying is that we care more about Jesus. Because I think this is how Satan works his way into our hearts, in our mind, and our soul. I don't think he starts off trying to convince us that our works can save you. I think that's the end game. However, I do think he tries to convince us that our works matter just as much as Jesus's. And this is where the Pharisees got into trouble. It doesn't start with, look how you have earned your way. Rather, it begins with, well, look how good you have been. Man, God must really, really love you. And look at them over there. I think that's how it starts, is we begin to think that our works somehow change God's love and his ebb and flow in our life, which then turns into this critical, well, can you believe them? If only they had it together like you do, then perhaps God would be pumped that they're on his team. But then that opens the door. You see that law? You see that code? Man, you've kind of fallen short, haven't you? Are you sure God still loves you? Man, think back to months ago, weeks ago, years ago. You were on fire for Jesus, but now it's been a while. Do you, you think God actually still loves you? And then when we face this, I think we, we get to one of two situations. We either feel like we got to try harder again to earn God's love back, or we just flat out give up. And the answer is neither. The answer is what it always has been. Surrender. Have faith in a sacrifice. 
As we move to our time of response this morning, I want us to remember that the awareness of our sin should not drive you and I to our hands. It should not drive you and I to our work. It should drive us to our knees. It should drive us to Jesus. It's because Jesus changes people more than rules do. Jesus changes you and I more than the rules do. If we spend our time and our belief and our understanding that as a Christian, my job is to be a good person, then we will struggle. We will always be standing, working. We will never find rest. And the one thing that Hebrews offers up is saying that you can find rest in the presence of God because God looks to the works of Jesus, not your own. Why? Because Jesus changes us more than rules do. The rules help us understand God's heart. They reveal to us the knowledge of God, the holiness of God. Yes, in some ways, they reveal to us that we fall short. But in that moment, we don't fall to our hands. We don't resort back to trying harder. What we do is we go before God and say, God, I cannot do this on my own. Thank you for your son who has taken my place. Thank you that he has restored me. And so as Jesus changes our lives, the question becomes is how has he changed your life? Has he made you a better person? Has he made you a better father? Has he made you a better mother, a better husband, a better wife, a better son, a better daughter, a better employee, a better boss? How has Jesus made you a better person? Because he has gotten a hold of your heart and transformed you from the inside out. But not for a second do we think that that transformation happens because of what we have to show for it, but because of everything that Jesus has done. I know about you, but for me, that's that's relieving. That's so relieving because I think a lot of us go through life thinking, I don't know if God's on my side right now. We take a step back. We look at the week it's been, the months it's been. We kind of say, I don't know how God could love someone like me. But the answer is, yes. So much so. God loves you so much so that he sent his son, Jesus, so you can be restored, you can be saved, that we can live better lives because of him. Let's partake in communion this morning as we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. What it cost Jesus so that we can have faith on the last night with his disciples, Jesus was in the upper room. He held up the bread. He broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take it.
held up the cup, he held the wine. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. And do this in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship this morning? God, you are good, you are powerful, you are gracious. And I know there's definitely times in which I see my sin has revealed my brokenness, how I have fallen short of your glory. And I think, man, I gotta do better. And while you do not want us to flippantly live life because we know every sin brings brokenness and pain, it also reminds us so good to us. God, may we be a church filled with Christians and disciples. May we be families and people who, in our community, that when we are reminded of our sin, we remind our sin of your grace. We worship you and you alone this morning. Amen.